Understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? What connects us? And what divides us? We'll dive into all of that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. Hi, this is China Field Notes. Uh, I'm your host Scott Kennedy, and I am absolutely delighted today to have with us on our program uh, Wang Zichun, who is a research fellow and director for international communications at the Center for. China and globalization, based in Beijing. So, Chun, thank you for being with us on today's program. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Absolutely. Let me give folks a little bit more of a background about you because you really have a, a unique perspective to share with、uh, the world and the policy community about China and its relationship with the rest of the world. Zhu Chun,、uh, before he joined CCG. Three years ago, he worked for eleven years for Xinhua, both in China and in Europe. He also is famous for two major newsletters、uh, that he edits. One is called Pekingology, another is called The East Is Red, and I encourage folks to go look at those.、Uh, those newsletters are available on Substack. In, in addition. Zuchun is a regular writer and engager, not only in Chinese social media but in Western social media, and he engages with public intellectuals in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere, and is part of a robust, ongoing conversation. Today, actually, Zuchun joins us from the United States. He is a participant in the International Visitors Leadership Program that is being organized. By the State Department. So one of the benefits of him being on this trip is that we are in the same time zone, and so if we both sound tired, it's because it's late at night. But it's not. It's the middle of the day, and we have both we are both wide awake. And so any fault of the podcast or anything is 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 my fault. I am really excited about this conversation. So Chun, again, thank you for being with us today. Oh, Scott, thank you for having me. You are very generous, and thank you for the kind introduction. So I'd like to, if we could, today talk about a few things. One, I want to hear a little bit about your trip and what you're surprised about, what you're learning. The other is to talk a little bit about CCG and think tanks in China, and the other is a little bit more about your views、uh, that you share through. Your various writings and and just your observations of, about China and its relationship with the United States and, and other things. And so,、uh, let's get started. And actually, just let's just start with where you are right now. You're in the United States. 
on this state, the State Department's International Visitors Leadership Program. Can you tell us a little bit about the trip and what brings you to the U.S.? Well, currently I'm in Boston, and I actually came to the States uh, in the middle of September, which is last month, and the official International Visitor Leadership Program is three weeks long. It has taken me to, first of all, Washington, D.C., secondly, uh, North Carolina, and then New York City, and then ending in Chicago. So the program took us to the State Department, to various policy research institutes, such as think tanks. So we were shown both the East Coast and the Midwest. And it's actually the first time for me personally to be in the United States. So it's quite eye-opening and uh, I enjoy it very much. And after the trip, after the official program ended in Chicago, uh, we have the opportunity to travel around ourselves. So I'm now in Boston visiting some universities. Well, that's terrific. You came to Washington a few weeks ago, and D.C. is my hometown. And as you know, I spent 15 years in the Midwest, uh, in Indiana. And of course, I have friends and family in the Northeast and in, and in North Carolina. So tell us, you know, what's most surprised you uh, about this trip? What have you found most interesting that um, you know, you wouldn't have learned had you not traveled here. Well, I think it goes without saying that China-U.S. relations are not at its best, to put it mildly. But I've been overwhelmed by the, you know, the friendliness and the hospitality of the people I've met, including you and diplomats at the State Department and the think tanks. And uh, we also went to the Capitol Hill to meet some congressional aides, uh, congressional aides. And uh, I mean, we had a candid and constructive talk. I think uh, even in this atmosphere that, you know, people can have a uh, very good discussion and a few laughs. And uh, uh, actually, I think I'm very grateful for that. A few other things I think is a little bit surprising is that I've come to realize that working from home has become sort of permanent for many Americans, but it's absolutely not a thing in China. People are going to their way, going to their employers in China and to, you know, according to the clocks. And uh, so this is something that I didn't anticipate. And also, you know, there is this stereotype about the U.S. is no longer doing infrastructure, it's not building stuff. But uh, the places I have been to, I see a lot of construction going on. I don't know if it came from the perhaps the Inflation Reduction Act, but uh, the uh, revamped uh, LaGuardia Airport is perfect. And uh, yeah, I think uh, the economy is, looks fine to me by the crowds of New York City. and. Uh, yeah, it's been very uh, enlightening trip here. That that's really fascinating. You know, I would say you know when I've traveled in China, uh, I've I've also been impressed by the warmth that people have greeted me with, even when we've had disagreements. Uh, we've they've been very collegial and respectful, and a lot of people don't actually want to focus on politics; they want to talk about other things. Glad to hear that. So you, yes, yes. So anyway, well, this is a love fest so far. Let me ask you. You went to different parts of the United States. You know, Chicago, people often don't think of as, as similar to North Carolina or the Northeast. Is, is you have any sense of the variation in what you encountered in, in these different parts of the country? Well, most definitely. Uh, like Chicago, the local people told me it's 
like New York City level living standards, but 40% less costly. And uh, I think I get a sense of that. And uh, North Carolina is incredibly beautiful. We went to the cities, smaller cities, Durham, uh, Raleigh, and a different feel from Washington DC and New York City. We were shown in a local airport and uh, it's expanding. I guess that's a more rural part compared to New York City and Chicago. Sure. You know, in the United States, we don't differentiate between first, second, third, fourth tier cities. But, you know, certainly Durham, Raleigh, Durham's a little bit smaller, but it's it's been modernizing. You, you have UNC, Duke, other other universities, high tech companies there. So it's it's you know considered a tech triangle. So, you know, I was curious. I had talked to some folks in the State Department and also we recently had a conference on scholarly exchange uh, in which we heard from some of our uh, other visiting Chinese scholars. The State Department's International Visitors Program has had a lot of difficulty attracting Chinese visitors. This year, I understand from the State Department that only two of the 14 scholars they offered visits to accepted those, you being one of them. So from what you just said, it sounds like the trip was really has been really worthwhile. What do you think is making people hesitant about actually taking up these offers and, and coming to the United States? I heard about what you mentioned after landing in the United States. There was another fellow IVLP participant from Shanghai, and uh, we both worked uh, outside the state apparatus. So where I work, the Center for China and Globalization, it's a non-governmental think tank. And the other participant from Shanghai is, is works in something like that. I guess for, I don't know who these 12 other invited Chinese guests were. And I guess, you know, maybe because it's a state department organized or funded program and maybe their employer or they themselves feel a little bit politically sensitive about attending it. It could, it could be. I know, you know, if, if China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs had a similar kind of program, if the funding was provided by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, that'd probably be difficult for most, for many Americans in the policy community, government to to accept that kind of invitation. Well, I, yeah, unfortunately, that's what also I heard. I talked to one senior researcher at one of the think tanks in the U.S., and she said, you know, she used to accept fully funded uh, trips to China, which is basically then tickets and uh, hotel accommodations from the Chinese side when she went to China. But uh, she unfortunately doesn't find it uh, feasible anymore under this climate. And, uh, you know, that does limit the exchanges between two sides, which are sorely needed in this day and time. Sure. I would uh, encourage, you know, people to travel to each other as frequently as possible, especially after COVID, which was a three-year hiatus between China and the United States. And, uh, you know, bilaterally, uh, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer just led a congressional group to visit China, and the uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping met him. And uh, from public accounts, it looked like a very warm meeting. And I think because it was a congressional group composed by both Democratic and the Republican senators, some of whom hold actually very strong views on China, that should have created a more policy space 
political space, excuse me, uh, for people to travel to each other? Well, this is a topic near and dear to my heart, as, as you know. And I think the other point to, to mention from this particular trip is not only were they able to look for points of agreement or mutual understanding, it was also an opportunity for the delegation to share their views about an ongoing crisis in Israel, attacks by Hamas and the world's reaction and some differences of opinion that the U.S. and, and China have about this. And so these kind of visits are important for finding areas of consensus and disagreement and really going much further in detail. And that's often just the product of, of timing uh, because you just don't know what is going to be in the news when a, a delegation travels. Hey, uh, if we could switch gears a little bit, because you work at CCG, I think it'd be helpful for the audience to understand a little bit more about CCG, its, its background, uh, what work it focuses on, uh, and then I have a follow-up question. Sure. And uh, but before doing that, let me say you played a pivotal role in leading a delegation to China a few months ago, and I think actually last year you went to China and well, you were greeted by then Vice Foreign Minister CFO, who is now the uh, Chinese ambassador to the U.S. So you personally have set up a great example of leading exchanges between Chinese and American scholars. And we had the opportunity to meet you at CCG, which is, you know, I joined CCG in October last year, so I've been here for a year. And CCG is a, let's say, a rare beast among Chinese think tanks in that it is a non-governmental organization. It was funded by Henry Huiyao Wang, or Wang Huiyao, uh, in 2008. And there is the co-founder and Secretary General, Mabel Miao Lu. And uh, I think the biggest difference between CCG and other think tanks is that CCG is outside the state apparatus. The Chinese government doesn't have a budget for this place, so it relies on both donations as well as revenues from providing services to clients in both public and the private sectors. And CCG has also been very active in facilitating the interactions between China and the international community. It is a port of call for Beijing's diplomatic community. And during COVID, CCG was the first Chinese think tank to venture outside China. So they went to uh, the United States, Europe, South Korea, and uh, Singapore. When I was not uh, working at the place, I was amazed. Yeah, and uh, you know the organization quite well. Sure. So that that's very helpful for, for people. And then CCG has been a, a venue for visitors from American think tanks policy community to visit China. And we, we've hosted them here for private conversations and sometimes some, some public events. I'm really curious because I work at an American think tank in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're pretty large. Uh, we're pretty old. CCG is is sizable, but it's it's as you mentioned, founded in two thousand eight. I did I do note that you know in, cur- in terms of rankings, there's a UPenn publishes its its an, an annual rankings. We are part of those rankings as well, and uh, you all I think last at the last rankings came in at sixty fourth, which is which is very high for Chinese think tanks. But I think that gets to the question is. In, in, in China's political system and its socioeconomic system, what is a think tank? How is it a think tank um, try to be influential in China? That is a very interesting and very good question. Oh, 
I think let's start with a definition. Uh, I think the general accepted definition of a think tank is that it performs uh, research and advocacy concerning topics such as you know policy, political strategy, uh, national security, technology, etc. But there is one crucial difference in think tanks in different countries. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, most of the research institutes refer to think tanks in the U.S. are non-governmental, while in China, many, if not most, think tanks are state-run. State -run. And so that's why I say CCG is a rare beast in that regard. You know, things you mentioned it as a, as a matter of fact, in August, CCG recently held a book launch event for a book dedicated to think tanks. The book was authored by Henry Huiwang and Mabel Lu Miao, the two leaders of CCG. Over a dozen leading Chinese scholars took part and, uh, in the book launch event, and they made some very interesting comments on Chinese think tanks. Uh, uh, I think uh, I've, we have already published the four scholars' comments in CCG Update, one of our newsletters. For example, uh, some well-established Chinese scholars actually don't think state-run research institutes in China should be referred to think tanks. Uh, I'm sure you have heard of Shi Yinghong, a candid and respected international relations scholar uh, at Jeremy University. She said at the CCG event, at its broadest, any institution producing knowledge can be termed a think tank. However, in his idea, a stricter definition confines it to non-governmental entities. So based on that, Shi Yinghong frankly asserted that the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, or CAS, perhaps one of the best known research institutes shouldn't be called a think tank. And he, Shi Yinghong, even told Lu Xiang, a scholar at CAS, at the scene of book launch event, that CAS shouldn't be called a, a think tank. And uh, Lu Xiang agreed with Shi Yinghong, I think. You know, Lu Xiang at the, at the a book launch event mentioned another interesting point is that, according to him, the word think tank in the U.S. is not inherently positive, but it is in the Chinese mainland context. I think one biggest difference is, and coming back to your question, is in my personal opinion, is that think tanks in China can be understood as within the decision-making system, as most of them are part of the state apparatus. And unlike in the U.S., uh, it's outside it's non-governmental, so it's not within the state apparatus. So that creates actually very different dynamics. For example, in the U.S., potential, well, the existing stakeholders, there are many of them. There are religious groups, there are different advocacy groups, local political organizations, different kinds of NGOs. I mean, they all try to make a voice from outside the system to influence legislation and policy making and the think tanks in the US, while very, very influential, they are one of these numerous forces of trying to influence decision making, legislation and policy making. And you know, the US has what is typically called a revolving door mechanism. So very good uh, university professors like you and uh, former policy makers from State Department, DOD, they go to think tanks. The similar things don't happen in China. And uh, I mean, most of the time, the like retired government officials actually get affiliated with think tanks. That is something more often. For example, CCG has quite some former director generals from Commerce Department or 
China's foreign ministry, who are already uh, retired, and they are affiliated with CCG and uh, mostly on a uh, non-resident basis. Yeah, they contribute to the walkie. So that brings up a very good point about metrics of, of independence. Certainly from a financial perspective, American think tanks are more independent broadly than Chinese think tanks, or if you accept Sharon Hong's idea, those organizations in China shouldn't be called think tanks. I bet you that generated a heck of a heck of a debate inside China when he said that. I would say, you know, but it, there's other things in, in addition, you know, in the United States, we have think tanks are registered as 501c3 organizations, giving them tax exempt status. There need to be usually there most think tanks, but not all of them are nonpartisan. And at least all of them cannot engage in lobbying, right? In addition, our staff comes from all over, some from academia, some from business. Some We have some, some former officials and sometimes people who work here have gone on to government. Um, can you talk a little bit about the registration system in China? As, as I understand it, according to, to Chinese laws, civil organizations like CCG, whether they're a think tank or other type of organization, register with the Ministry of Civil Affairs. But historically, they've also had what I guess it's called a guacao danwei, an affiliated organization in the state that sort of takes responsibility to ensure that they follow general principles and guidelines, don't misbehave, is, and that CCG's original guacao danwei was the Ministry of Commerce. I don't know if it still is, but could you talk a little bit about that registration process? Sure. Uh, CCG is registered as a non-governmental Foundation, and uh, as you correctly said, actually, it's the Ministry of Civil Affairs or the system of uh, civil affairs that manages these registrations. And CCG itself is registered as a non-governmental foundation at Beijing Municipal Civil Affairs Bureau, and uh, that registration is openly available. You can people can search it online and. Uh, yeah, so, and uh, I think there are, I think Chinese regulations in this regard is, you know, because of the development of the uh, market economy and stuff. So the registration system is, is still in the process of evolvement and it's not as developed as, as in the U.S. So uh, I think some other think tanks, non-state think tanks register, sometimes they register as for-profit companies as much as far as I know. And some of the state-run think tanks, they are like just uh, sort of government bodies or what do we call Shia Danways, like for public uh, welfare institutions. And perhaps you have heard of it because you are obviously an expert on China. Actually, the political bureau of the Communist Party of China Central Committee has, uh, they uh, once held a meeting where it is uh, decided that there are 27 or 28 like piloted uh, national high-end think tanks, all of them are state-run, and they include, you know, CAS, like certain research institutions, uh, search, uh, certain research centers within universities, as well as a, for example, Xinhua News Agency, where I used to work. It is also considered one of the 28 uh, top think tanks, all of which are state-run. That's very helpful. I just want to sort of prod it just one last thing and then talk about, you know, substantive policy issues and, and things like that, because you've written so much. And I know that 
you're an active thinker. One other difference between the U.S. and China, you, you referred to it in general, but the role of the Chinese Communist Party in governance and in its view about think tanks and policymaking. You know, the U.S. is a multi-party democracy in which, you know, think tanks try to be nonpartisan and, you know, we don't usually hear from Republicans or Democrats, uh, at least directly through their party organizations about the work that we do. Um, what is it like to, to be a think tank in a country where the Communist Party is so omnipresent uh, and, and also has branches within organizations as well? Is How, how much do you think that really limits the scope of, of the questions you can ask or the kinds of answers that you can give? Or do you feel that the kind of constraints aren't very significant. Well, uh, I think obviously the political system of the People's Republic of China is very different from that of the United States. And here, you know, one word that is often talked about in China watching is called party state apparatus. And so the party state is, I think it's seen as a fatherly figure, which is also part of the Chinese tradition and its governance models. And this is supposed to, as a father, sometimes harsh, sometimes very benevolent, but that is taking care of everyone. So it has a lot of power, but on the other hand, it shoulders a lot of responsibility. For example, if a if a person loses an investment from a you know, a trust company, despite it's a private company, the, the person would go to the government to petition. And uh, yeah, and I think the Chinese think tank function within this macro environment. And for those within the party state apparatus, the state think tanks, as far as I know, I think they just, uh, for example, when they go on official trips, they have to abide by the all the regulations, expenses, for example, how much money you can spend in your certain hotel. That's just part of the state system. And uh, for those outside the state system, there is no such requirement because there is no overseer. For example, if a, let's say a certain institute is within a ministry, then it is just a proper part of that ministry and listens to what the uh, ministry says. But for think tanks outside the state apparatus, I think it's about trying to make the best possible and feasible policy analysis and recommendations for the country as a whole and uh, to have its public interest at its heart. Well, that's that's helpful to know. I mean, we know from doing research on China's economy, policymaking, that, you know, th- there are pretty close connections between the party and various organizations. And also there's lots of personnel ties or informal ties I know in Washington, you not only have to have good ideas, it, it, it's helpful to know people and how to share them. It is a community. Just China's just has a, a somewhat different dynamic to it because uh, of the presence of the, of the Communist Party. Let me uh, see if we could talk a little bit about some substantive topics because you've written uh, a lot about U.S.-China relations. China and I noticed just recently I, I was just looking at Pekingology and the East is Red. You you have some really interesting posts lately, and one is on a speech that was given by Yu Yongding, and who's a Chinese economist. He's visited here at CSIS before, and and in his recent speech that you summarized, he called for Chinese government 
to step up its stimulus, macroeconomic policy, fiscal policy, in order to, for, for China to hit higher growth numbers. He said that he thought China could hit 6% for a while if it had a more proactive stimulus approach. I was just curious, you, you offered no comment on Yu Yongding's speech, but by giving it so much attention, you seem to endorse it. And I was just wondering if what's the, how you, what's your feeling about the stimulus and also uh, using these kinds of public comments by others as a way to further a conversation in China and, and elsewhere? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, I think for background information for the listeners out there, I think what I do think is a combination of three things. First of all, it's like a translation of some uh, leaders' speech and uh, policy documents because many of them aren't available in English and uh, so not very accessible. The second part is sometimes I share my own ob- observation, but the biggest part is, as you uh, raised the example of Yongding's speech, is I try to uh, present substantial and uh, technical discussions on serious policy issues that are already available uh, in Chinese, but perhaps not well known in English. I try to provide them to the international audience, which at the time count uh, for pay technologies twelve thousand. And uh, yeah, I picked the the content mostly just uh, well. As some people, quite some people have asked me about it, and uh, even some people ask me, "Is there somebody trying to send a signal or something?" Well, I'm sorry to share. It's just my news judgment, and uh, I read the news, and uh, I I think um, I try to guess. For example, what Scott Kennedy like to read? That's just uh, what I do because you know the. Of course, the the prospect of Chinese economy is a very hot issue at these days, and one of the biggest arguments, both internationally and English, on the pages of of the Wall Street Journal and the, the Economist, as well as in Chinese academia and uh, among the chief economists at security uh, firms, uh, securities firms, is that you know because there is a consensus of that maybe the Chinese government hasn't spent enough money and the local government uh, their fiscal policy is under great pressure so whether the central government which if you measure the the balance sheet of Chinese central government and local government basically the the debt burden of the central government is relatively low and that is a consensus by everyone so whether the central government should help the local government by for example for example issuing more debt and uh, to stimulate the economy i think actually my role in this is i try to become a i try to be a communicator and i used to be a journalist for c1 news agency for 11 years and uh, I'd no longer work in the media, but I think there are a lot of content worth knowing, worth discussion. So I try to make them available. And uh, I do not pretend to be an expert on very particular subjects, although maybe because I've been following policy documents and leaders' speeches soon, and uh, I was trained at Tsinghua, so maybe I can tell the difference between this policy statement and uh, comparable and uh, the difference between this one and the comparable one from let's say six months ago but on very specific policy measures sometimes i think they all make uh i mean different sides of the argument they are voiced by 
equally qualified economists. And uh, for example, Yu Yongding was a advisory member for on the monetary policy for China's central bank a few years back. Yeah, I'd like for you know more people to see the arguments and uh, yeah to stimulate further discussions. Our colleague here at CSIS, Jude Blanchett, has a, a similar yes. project called Interpret China. He translates usually a group of documents and writings about different topics uh, for the same kind of, of purpose. You know, for those of us watching who don't have the amount of time and linguistic ability uh, and experience that you do, I think for us, these translations and introductions are, are valuable, part mainly because they identify that there is a debate in China. Uh, and oftentimes, our view is that there must not be a debate in China because the dominance of, of the current leadership in its particular point of view. But certainly, Yu Yongding is uh, clearly expressing a position which is somewhat different than than current policy. You did that same thing a couple days later with a, with a speech that Huang Jikun gave about food security. And because his, his view on food security is somewhat different than others, there's another piece from about a month ago about decentralization, because that has obviously also touched off uh, debates in China as well. So this is that that's the value of all of these. Uh, the difficulty for observers like ourselves, and maybe you can help us here, is how representative are these different points of view relative to alternative perspectives so and how much is it reflected of a real ongoing difference of opinion or you know is this just someone yong ding is kind of off by himself huang ji kun is just by himself or are, are are you picking these in part because these really are reflective of ongoing conversations in which there are different points of view i haven't looked to too much on agriculture related policies, so I don't know uh, in the case of Huang Jiquan, but I do think Yu Yongding is certainly not alone up there for calling more stimulus by the central government. There are actually quite many voices for that, and admittedly, China doesn't have the First Amendment, but there are still vibrant uh, discussions of such policy matters going on by academics, by former government officials, by people working at, for example, because all the securities brokerages, they have their chief economists, and uh, yeah, they talk about these policies very much. I think I I understand what you said a, a little bit earlier, is that it's very difficult for many people outside China to try to evaluate the policy discussions. First of all, the Chinese Mandarin, the language is a, is a barrier. And secondly, the way that Chinese speeches and official documents are written, the unique way that they are written, this also raises a lot of challenges for outsiders. I mean, even for people growing up in China with a college degree, sometimes they find it difficult to evaluate, you know, the specific choice of words. A lot of times it's, you have to com make comparisons. For example, typically each July, the, the political bureau holds a uh, meeting every month and uh, the July's meeting is typically about the economy. And uh, so when the July the readout is published, you have to compare it with a comparable one, which is typically a few months before. And that is how you 
uh, find the differences and coach what has changed and what remains consistent. And uh, on whether such views are, are a little bit difficult to coach. I think only after you've been following it closely and remain staying up to date and can one decide which is. Uh, yeah, but uh, I think, for example, you your specialty, I guess, is uh, economy and business. And on these matters, there has always been very uh, sharp debates on both sides. I want to ask one final question, and I really want to express my thanks for you joining us today in the midst of a, a, a busy travel schedule, and that's about U.S.-China relations. So you've, you've had these several weeks in the United States, going to different parts of the country, talking to people from government, localities, scholars. I guess, do you come away more optimistic or pessimistic about the ability of the United States and China to peacefully coexist? Or are you expecting greater frictions to be with us for some time? And maybe thinking more in the short term, we've got possibly Presidents Biden and Xi Jinping meeting on the sidelines of APEC in mid-November. Do you hold out any hope that that meeting will yield much progress? Or again, you know, because 2024 is going to be a different year. Even number of years in the United States mean elections. And so probably the relationship is going to be about as good as it possibly can get by the later this year. I'm just curious where you where you see U.S.-China relations going after uh, your visit here. Well, first of all, I think the good old days are just gone. So we have to admit that. And yeah, so China-U.S. relations are certainly on a much lower base than it was like 10 years ago, and uh, that's just a fact. But on the short to medium term, I'm actually quite optimistic, especially I've seen the latest positive mo- uh, momentum with, you know, President Xi Jinping met uh, the group of six senators led by Senate Majority Leader Jack Schumer. And uh, this is very important because, you know, the Article 1 of the U.S. Congress, uh, of the U.S. Constitution doesn't talk about the administrative branch, but the but the legislative branch. So Congress is enormously important. And according to the readout given by the Chinese side, the President Xi said China welcomes the visits of more U.S. Congress members. And that sends a very important signal. So we hope that, I mean, I hope uh, there will be more visits by congressional delegations. And actually, I think, you know, Harry Hui Wang of CCG, he wrote like in April on the South China Morning Post when he was like the first prominent Chinese voices to openly call for such a visit. And I'm sure CCG is very happy to see, you know, congressional delegations have come to China. And I think this year we have seen several uh, U.S. cabinet members visiting uh, China and uh, China's Commerce Minister Wang Wentou and Vice President Han Zhen have come to the United States and the two climate envoys have talked uh, online very frequently actually. Xi Jinping, the Chinese climate envoy, told a CCG event last month that he almost spoke every two weeks with John Kerry, the U.S. climate envoy. And um, as you correctly said, the expectation is that, you know, the Chinese president and the U.S. president would meet. And I think that's very, very important because it will be the first meeting between the two heads of state after their meeting in Bali, Indonesia last year. And uh, given the political atmosphere on both sides, it's enormously important to have them guide bilateral relations towards what I believe to be more stabilization. And since we're at this, I just want to mention that maybe people outside professional China watching 
haven't heard of it, but last year uh, in Bali, President Xi Jinping told President Biden that China does not seek to change the existing international order or interfere in the internal in the internal affairs of the United States, and has no intention to challenge or displace the United States. And I hope they have a meeting this year and have a more productive one because. I mean, we have seen some bilateral working groups on finance, on economy matters being set up, and uh, I think they are the necessary preparations for a fruitful meeting between the two leaders. And uh, I also think, as my trip so far has proved, you know, the people-to-people exchanges and the, the friendliness between Chinese people and American people. It's just enormous, and I was—I've always been struck by one photo from the Second World War. There was a picture of an American soldier smoking a cigarette, and a, who looks like to be a Chinese peasant also wants to smoke to light a cigarette. But apparently, there weren't a lighter or a match, so so they just put the cigarettes together, use one to light another. And I've come across that photo many times. It tells that actually Chinese people and American people are unpretentious. They are hardworking, and I think what they want is is quite similar. They want affordable healthcare. They want good education. They want a good life, and they want affordable housing and a decent life after. Retirement. I think both countries are having enormous domestic challenges. You know, economic ones. For example, in China, there are six hundred million people with a mostly disposable income of less than one thousand yuan. That's about a hundred and fifty U.S. dollars. It's still a developing country. On the U.S. side, I understand the homelessness problem is very serious. The gap between the rich and the poor, especially in the As inflation has unfortunately soared, so yeah, both countries, I think, taking care of their home, of their domestic affairs, that's the that's the aim of politicians, of leaders, on both sides. Those are some very helpful insights. The U.S. and China have obviously lots of reasons to try and get along and face a lot of similar challenges. The story you mentioned of that photograph, I do hope that going forward, we're not helping each other smoke cigarettes and hurt our health. We're, we're using other ways to, to help each other. I think we've proven uh, that smoking is, is harmful for everybody, regardless of what country you're from. I would also say that I have some hope that the increase in diplomacy will lead to greater conversations to address specific varieties of problems and, and broader questions of trust. I am still, you know, think it's important for us to recognize that even though Xi Jinping has has said repeatedly that China doesn't seek to replace the United States or change the order, the US and China, at least at the official level, do have differences of opinion about what that order is and what it should be. I mean, China has emphasized the UN based order. The US has based has emphasized additional foundations of the international order. And we have different views about the role of information in the state, which is with regard to the internet and news. We have differences of opinion about even with on industrial policy, even with the growth of American spending on on industries, we still broadly have some differences there. So I don't think that we should, you know, China's got its global security initiative, global development initiative, global civilization initiative. These have somewhat different emphases than the United States. So I don't think that we should understate the significant differences uh, that we have, but can we figure out how to deal with these, uh, manage them in a way that 
makes it so that we can coexist also so that we don't have a war with each other. I think to me, that's the big challenge. I, I wonder if, is that a reasonable framing that you'd find acceptable? Because I, I don't want to leave folks at least with the impression that everything is just, if, as long as we talk, we'll solve everything. And so I was just, you know, talking is also about talking about our differences too. Of course. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I think, uh, for example, I think you and on this side, CCG, have been working to trying to create a framework of dialogue and to deeper mutual understanding to, as you said, you know, manage all these differences. And I happen to think, you know, there is still a transition or an adjustment period because China is apparently has been rising for 30 years. And I think the Americans and uh, especially the foreign policy elites it takes time to adjust to to a rise in China, and it also takes time for China to explore the best possible ways that can manage the anxieties of the United States. But I think um, actually some of the things that China has been accused of overreaching, and I think some of them come from a natural build-up of the national strength that is commensurate with basically its rising GDP and as a share of the global economy. And it's not targeted as destabilizing what the U.S. has built and led over the world. And as you said, as long as the both sides can manage to avoid confrontation, especially a military conflict, people can find a way to coexist with one another. Well, I hope we can. Obviously, much is riding on the ability of the United States and China to be able to manage their differences and face some common challenges together, uh, given the size of our economies, our militaries, our influence on the, the rest of the world. I'm left a little bit more optimistic after this conversation that at least we'll be better able to understand each other because of, of younger Chinese like yourself who have a wide range of experiences, both domestically and internationally, and through opportunities for Americans to, to learn more about China. The, the conversation's worthwhile, I think, and, and hopefully will we'll yield more fruit. So, so China, I want to thank you so much for joining China Field Notes, for sharing your thoughts with us, and look forward to continuing the conversation with you in the future. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's uh, absolutely a pleasure and a privilege to be here and talking with you. I enjoy the recording of the podcast and uh, I'll keep listening to it. And uh, if thank I you can so much. give a shout, shout out, try subscribing to technology and uh, the AC is red. You know, always hustle. That's the American spirit I've heard. <laughs> uh, China has its fair share of entrepreneurs as well. And I would count you amongst one of them. Thank you. Thanks for listening to China Field Notes. Stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to great content. Until next time.